Hello and welcome to Read All About It, the podcast where people talk about their favourite and not-so-favourite books. Join me, Paul Cuddihy, as I take each guest on the literary journey of their life, from their most cherished childhood read and a book they'd recommend to anyone, to the book they couldn't be paid to read again, and much more in between. So listen, enjoy, subscribe and spread the word about the Read All About It podcast. Hello and welcome to the Read All About It podcast and I'm delighted to be joined on this episode by Aidan McQuaid who is from South Armagh in Ireland, although now based in London. Aidan is an anti-slavery and human rights consultant. From 2006 to 2017, he was director of the non-governmental organisation Anti-Slavery International, which was founded back in 1839 and is the world's oldest international human rights organisation. And prior to that, for 13 years, he worked in humanitarian response, development and human rights. Aidan is a frequent contributor to international newspapers and journals relating to slavery and human rights. And he's a patron of the Dalit Solidarity Network UK and an ambassador for the International Dalit Solidarity Network. This year, he has also brought out his first novel, The Undiscovered Country, which was published by Unbound Books following a successful crowdfunding project. And he's currently working on his second novel. Well, among his many other achievements is the impressive boast that he was the mastermind champion in 2013. Aidan, welcome to the Read All About It podcast. Thanks very much for having me, Paul. Now, there's, there's so much to, to chat about in terms of uh, your career, this, this kind of really small potted biography, and I'm sure in the course of the podcast we'll do that. But in terms of, you know, your work, obviously, you know, you've worked for, for many years in terms of human rights and anti-slavery campaigning, um, and you've worked all over the world. What made you gravitate towards that area of interest and expertise? And obviously a very, very difficult area of work at times, I'd imagine. I suppose I'm not sure. I think there was a number of factors. There was certainly some notion of an idea of uh, having a bit of adventure in your life and doing interesting work. I suspect there was something in my mind from around the 1974 Ethiopian famine, which was bothering me and troubled me up through my childhood. Though I don't have any direct memories of that. All I do have is a constant memory that that's the sort of work I wanted to do. So that's where I would guess the origin came from. And so whenever I was uh, thinking about university career, um, when I was 18 or 19, I went to study civil engineering specifically so that I would have something, a useful skill to work overseas with. Because I noticed, you know, I, I'd looked at, uh, you know, obviously you see a biography on your website. And, you know, I mentioned the fact that for about 11 years you were working with Anti-Slavery International and you were one of the first voices, if not the first voice, to really speak out publicly about eradicating slavery and making that central to, I suppose, public international policy mm. that kind of was echoed eventually by, you know, by Pope Francis taking that up as well. And did that feel sometimes that you were kind of a lone voice in your organisation, was it? Yes. I mean, one of the things I'd been hammering on about, uh, certainly from 2006, was the need for slavery eradication to be seen as a central strategy for poverty eradication. And it was interesting if you looked at, the, if you remember the Millennium Development Goals, which was a set of targets for international development, which were set up around the beginning of this century. There was no mention of slavery within them. And any time I mentioned this, there was generally no interest. And it just felt we were getting nowhere. And um, eventually I went to a conference in the Vatican. And I wasn't even the speaker at this conference, but I made an intervention from the floor where I raised the issue of the importance of slavery eradication as part of the project to end poverty. 
that made it into the communique of the conference. And two weeks later, Pope Francis mentioned it in a speech, and I think it was actually in a homily. Consequently, then the entire world thought this was a great idea. So um, it's it's sometimes whenever you, you just get a, a break and a moment of luck whenever these things come through and they the resonate with the right people at the right point in time. But there's still a job of work to be done with that. I, mean, I was trying to edit a, a journal over the past six months in relation to the relationship between humanitarian emergency response and slavery. And it was an interesting thing. I was just talking to the overall editor a few days ago about how few submissions we got on the subject. The entire humanitarian community still doesn't engage with these issues in any meaningful way. I was in Cox's Bazaar where the Rohingya have ended up whenever they fled Myanmar. Uh, I was there about a year ago, year and a half ago. And, um, you know, there's extensive stories of extensive reports of uh, vulnerable Rohingya being trafficked by both local Bangladeshi organized crime and sometimes by their own families because they're in desperate straits. And again, we're not seeing any significant response by the humanitarian community towards that. So it's something we still all need to batter on about because there's a lot of people with a lot of resources who could be doing more about this who just aren't because they haven't engaged with it adequately. I suppose, as you say, it's just a, it's an ongoing challenge and I suppose your work never ends then. Yeah, it, it, it doesn't. And sometimes it gets worse. I mean, I've been dealing a lot this past year with the consequences of the UK government's hostile environment policy and their efforts to deport people who have been clearly victims of trafficking and have ended up in the UK. But because they're foreign, the government much more often wants to get them deported rather than given the sort of protections that they've promised as, quote, one of the world's leading anti-slavery governments. So, um, Shifts in policy can lead to real retrograde situations arising. And, uh, you know, I suppose if you were to have Pretty Patel in this podcast, Paul, she'd probably tell you about her deep commitment to eradicating slavery in the world. And yet she oversees a government department which puts in place policies which make the enslavement of people in this country uh, much more likely and which refuse to render protection to people from other countries. I'm trying to think what circumstances would ever see Pretty Patel ended up on the Read All About It podcast, but as stranger things have happened. I mentioned, obviously, just again, one of the things in the introduction, and I think you're obviously the first mastermind champion to appear on the Read All About The podcast. I suspect you might be the only one. And the only one, I'm just asked them. <laughs> I, I did watch the, because you can, you can get on the BBC archives, the, wee, the clip of your, your final round. I watched the kind of general knowledge round, which kind of pushed you. I think you won, you won it by two points. And, and when you were asked, John Humphreys asked you what you were going to do with the bowl, you said you were going to put, you were going to put some bananas in it. But um, I, mean, um, that is a, I mean, that is an impressive achievement. Do you have the trophy somewhere where, where I just occasionally remind you of it or to let other people know? Well, there's been nobody in the house for the past year, so uh, unfortunately I've not been able to remind too many people of it. But um, no, I do occasionally have a look at it and think that was a good couple of months. There's a couple of things about Mastermind. Is uh, First of all, Humphreys is usually on his best behaviour whenever he's at it, though you don't have that much interaction with him. But the staff of Mastermind, the producers and all the personnel are, are all just lovely. And part of it, I think, is because they know you have those minutes in the spotlight, that's stressful enough. So they need to do as much as they can in order to uh, make the experiences as nice as possible. 
But I remember at the end of the final, there's a lot of serious quizzers in that. And there was one chap who's a Glasgow man and a big Celtic supporter called John Savage, who was there in the final as well. And uh, he was the only fella who insisted on staying behind in order to have a drink with me to celebrate at the end. Thought that was class all the way through. And the rest of them all slunk off very upset. But John made the point. I need to have a drink with you because somebody needs to say congratulations. So um, that, that's always something that's always stayed with me. And a lot, a lot of the other people that you meet going through it. I think there's two sorts of people who go through mastermind: readers and quizzers. And the readers are always interested people because they're people who are interested in stuff and interested in subjects and are interested in what other people are interested in, as opposed to people who just want to score an extra point. So um, I think John's one of the great readers of the world and hence was happy to stay around and have a drink and a chat once the, uh, the dust had settled on the battle. And a good Celtic man to boot as well. Yeah, Celtic man to boot. Now in terms of you mentioned readers there, which uh, I always like it when we inadvertently have a seamless link get into the, the next phase of the podcast. And obviously I'm asking you to choose some of the books that have led you on a literary journey of your life. So taking you right back to your childhood and it's your favourite book from childhood and the book that you've chosen is a book by Rosemary Sutcliffe called The Hound of Ulster. The Hound of Ulster is, is uh, Rosemary Sutcliffe's retelling of um, what's known as the Ulster Cycle of Irish Legends. So it's uh, things like Tan Bocunia, Catalina Cooley, and it's slightly cleaned up for kids, but not that much to be fair to her. And uh, the thing is, one of the things that gripped me about it at the start was it's set in South Armagh, North Louth, mostly. And uh, it was stuff I'd heard about a bit growing up, but never, I'd never got the whole story. So people would talk about Cúchulainn did this, Cúchulainn did that. But I never got it all together in one place. And that was the first time I got it all together in one place. And I saw the whole Ulster cycle of, of the Irish legends in one piece. And then, you know, years later, I'd go and read Tan Cúchulainn itself um, in the Thomas Kinsella translation. The other thing, I suppose, about it as well, which was nice, was here was an English writer writing about the very mountains that I was looking at out of the front window of the house. And that sort of gave us some sense of not being as isolated, not being as parochial as, as we might otherwise have thought through the very limited cultural interactions that we had growing up and grew up uh, outside Newry. And, you know, there was the odd play in town done by the local amateur dramatic society. The cinemas had been shut down because of the bombing campaigns and the troubles. Um, so we had television with three UK channels and one Irish channel, and that was sort of about it. Um, and there was the local library, which was pretty run down at the time, despite the very dedicated effort of the librarians there. So there, there, was, there was a sense of cultural isolation, which this book began then to say, well, well, maybe actually there's a bit more significance to where you come from than you'd thought. And um, it also, I suppose, was a bit of a gateway drug into there were the rest of Rosemary Sutcliffe's writings. So she sort of specialised in stories of the Dark Ages, Northern European legends. So she wrote a version of Beowulf as well, and uh, Finn McCool, The Fenian Cycle. And uh, various stories of the, uh, the end of the Roman Empire in Britain and um, the Dark Ages in Britain and the coming of the Vikings and you know, these sorts of things, which were sort of like, I think, interesting in terms of extending an awareness of sort of like, you know, th there was a culture and history going on in Northern Europe at the same time as there was all this stuff going on in Southern Europe, which is more famous, obviously, around the classical period. 
So it was um, having discovered Rosemary Sutcliffe that then led into other stuff like Roger Lancel Green and Henry Treese and people who wrote similar sorts of stories. And uh, it certainly helped while away some of the long hours and the summer's afternoon during quite boring summer holidays otherwise. What age were you when you first read The Hound of Ulster? And did you, was it the library you got it from or was it your parents that, that gave you it? Yeah, I got it from the library and um, I was probably about nine at the time, nine, ten at the time. So, um, yeah, it was uh, it was a bit of a revelation. And, and again, as I say, it kept me um, in reading material, I suppose, until I was in my, uh, my mid-teens or so before I moved on to Tolkien. It was sort of the thing that uh, you knew whenever you went into the library of uh, Saturday morning, look for the Rosemary Sutcliffe books and then whatever's beside Rosemary Sutcliffe books. And you're probably going to have a week's entertainment out of them. I wasn't aware of her body of work, which is actually pretty substantial. But the interesting thing I always feel, particularly for children, is you, you mentioned it about the fact that that book is kind of set where you are. It's almost yeah. like for children to either see themselves or see their, their surroundings, their culture, you know, reflected in a book. You know, that's a really powerful thing for any reader, but particularly, I think, at a young age. Yeah, I think so too. I mean... I suppose it's the nature of being a child as well as when you're confined to the to the family home and your horizons of your world are quite narrow and and somebody saying whether it's a theatre director or a movie director or, or a novelist saying actually understand there's a, a lot more history here there's a lot more importance to it there's stories which are worth telling the rest of the world about where you come from I think that's uh, that is very powerful and helps you think. Yeah, there's a broader world there which I, I should be curious about and should know more of. Do you think it's as well? It's interesting that you mentioned that she is an English writer. That sometimes maybe just even that outside perspective, but then discovering it from because obviously people maybe within community or the area might know the stories, but for somebody from the outside to say this is a great story as a novelist. I think there is that because there's that the thing they talk about in social sciences of taken for grantedness. It's the stuff that which is uh, next door to you. You don't necessarily think is important because it is so taken for granted. I mean, there was a thing whenever Tommy Makem, the Irish folk musician, died. There was a full page uh, obituary of him in the Economist, and you know, I mean, getting an obituary in the Economist is quite a thing. And I think a lot of people were thinking. Well, I didn't really appreciate he was just that that world important. And of course he was, because, I mean, Tommy Makem and the Clancy brothers were uh, hugely influential in the uh, revival of folk in the United States and hugely influential in the career of people like uh, Bob Dylan as well, as well as being great musicians in their own right. Well, Tommy Makem and Liam Clancy were great musicians in their own right anyway. Not so sure about the other fellas, to be honest. But, um, you know, you, again, it's always that somebody else coming from outside and saying, well, did you ever think about this? And I was thinking about it in relation to something else a while ago in terms of, you know, what are the best books in relation to the Troubles in Northern Ireland? And I think one of them is uh, Rebel Hearts, which is by Kevin Toulis, who's uh, Edinburgh Irish. Another one which is just published recently is called Say Nothing, which is about the murder of uh, Jean McConville. And that's written by a guy called Patrick Robin Keefe, who's Boston, Australian Irish. The book Ten Men Dead about the hunger strikers was written by David Hurst, I think it was, who was uh, English, but had been the Guardian's correspondent in Northern Ireland for many years. And again, I think it's that idea of people who are just a, a bit separated from it, oftentimes then have that bit more perspective on things. And that helps to, uh, to just understand this is what's happening and why it's important. Interestingly, I think you mentioned Kevin Toulis. I'm just going to glance to my, my left. 
What about my father's wake? I don't know if you read it. I was just going to stretch over. Obviously, this is just audio, so people can't. It's uh, it's a book basically. It's called My Father's Wake: How the Irish Teachers to Live, Love, and Die. And it's him recounting how he, he went back home when his father was dying because he'd obviously had moved away and he was. I think yeah. he was based in in England and went back and it was you know reconnecting with his father, but also in how in terms of Irish culture, how death was dealt with in terms of either people who are dying but also the people that are left behind and he said it's completely a complete contrast to the kind of maybe the culture in, in sort of mainland UK and it's a really it's a fascinating book. I, I have it on my shelf and I haven't read it yet I'm afraid and I know Kevin quite well so um, I'm sure he'll strangle me if he ever hears that <laughs> the last time I saw him I would read it but um, it's something which is the nature of the Irish wake is beginning to die out. I think it's something which tends to be now confined to the north of Ireland, even rather than other parts of Ireland. My sister died about a year ago, and we had people from all over the country coming in. But, you know, it was people from outside the north. They're thinking, what's going on here? What really is going on here? The fact that we had our sister, my sister at home for the last couple of days before her burial. And we're inviting everybody into the house in order to just have a cup of tea with us and have a chat. Was really something which uh, which other parts of the uh, country don't seem to do so much anymore. My my niece's boyfriend's from Clare, and that was it was quite alien to him. And one of the carers uh, from my my mother, who's very elderly, who's from Lithuania, um, she came to pay her respects, and uh, they seemed to have the same tradition in Lithuania. So she was completely unfazed. <laughs> but uh, but even people from other parts of Ireland were thinking, what's going on here? Yeah. And my wife, who's Czech, really, really was having quite a culture shock through the whole thing. Because that's interesting. My, uh, both my, my father-in-law and my mother-in-law passed away over the last uh, 10 years or so. And on both occasions, you know, we had what would be kind of, tra- kind of traditional Irish way, you know, bringing the body home for a couple of days. And kind of the family coming together again and, and mourning. And, but also, it's kind of, there's an element of celebration of life as well. And those kind of connections, and, which I think is really important. Yes, absolutely. I mean, and particularly my, my sister's um, my sister's final months. I've never seen anybody comport themselves with that level of courage and grace. And um, it really was quite humbling. And, and yeah, it was, I think uh, it was a nice opportunity to have particularly her friends around and family around in order to, to celebrate her life at the end of it. So, yeah, I think it's an important thing. Um, in terms of taking you on uh, your literary journey, the next question is obviously your favourite book from your kind of teenage formative uh, years. Yeah. And the book that you've chosen is a book called The Big Fellow by Frank O'Connor. The Big Fellow by Frank O'Connor is, um, well, it's, it's, I think, still classed as a biography of Michael Collins. I think it's probably a fair description to say it's a non-fiction novel. But whenever it was written first in the 1930s, I don't think that notion really had, had much traction. I think it was, it was Tom Wolfe and the, uh, in the 1960s in America brought that into consciousness and the literary consciousness. But it was based very much on... Um, O'Connor was on the opposing side in the Civil War, but he was also from Cork, as Collins was. And he described whenever he was in prison during the Civil War, whenever the news of Michael Collins' killing came in, um, that all of the prisoners, the Republican prisoners, the prisoners who were on the opposite side of Collins all knelt down to pray to say the rosary for him. And he couldn't understand just why the hell this person in such reverence, given the fact that he was the leader of the opposition. And so subsequently he described this as a, as a labour of love when he would go around and interview people who knew Collins and fought with them and worked with them over the years. And then he, he wrote this book based on that. 
so you know if you if you're familiar with Frank O'Connor's short stories or anything else, I mean you know he was he was a master of the written word, but in addition to that, I think one of the reasons that it was so powerful to me, uh, as well as being a, a beautifully written piece of work, was there was a, an ongoing theme, and it was a theme in Colin's life, which was we're not having anything to do with glorious defeats anymore. That the going down to beautiful songs and tragic weeping doesn't really cut it. That if we want to have a better society, we need actually to start winning stuff and we need to be effective in what we're doing. That was, I think, a central part of his, his philosophy of, of fighting war, of making peace. And I think it was, you know, whenever, whenever you look back over Irish history and all sort of the idea of glorious defeat, glorious defeat, glorious defeat, glorious defeat, gets a bit tiring after a while. And finally you got somebody like Collins. It was, uh, you might say, shoddy victory, but it was victory. And consequently from that, he was right. He got a stepping stone to freedom. We got a stepping stone to freedom. And uh, uh, the Irish, at least a partial Irish state, has grown out of that. So I think that, that message of it's important to be effective. It's important to be effective in life. It's important to be effective professionally, no matter what you do. It's particularly important to be effective if you're going to fight a war because starting to blast the heads off people with no prospect of being able to deliver that into something meaningful, which is better for the living in years to come, is morally unjustifiable. And I think that's something which Collins fundamentally understood. I think subsequently, if you look at some of the uh, more recent historical scholarship, uh, people like T. Ryle Dwyer, and his work on, um, on Michael Collins, particularly getting into late 1920, early 1921, I think some of his standards slipped. And th- there was certainly stuff which was done which was pretty reprehensible. I think that's something which he became conscious of in the truce period and so was loath to go back to war. And he comported the civil war with much greater generosity for the short time that he was alive during it. But it was also interesting that the Dublin Guards, which was one of the uh, Irish army units, which was formed out of Collins' squad, was then responsible for some of the worst excesses of the Free State Army during the Civil War. And I think it's become very brutalised by the conflict which they fought against the British in 1920-21. So it's probably fair to say it's it's not as sure um, of such unalloyed moral justification isn't that that O'Connor paints isn't probably sustainable anymore, but it's still a powerful portrait, a powerful introduction to that life and to that period of history. Because I I wondered as well, because he he wrote that, I think it came out in 1937, so that's maybe just about 15 years after Michael Collins' death. I wondered what the reaction would, would have been in Ireland at the time, because obviously... You know, at the time, obviously, with that, that split with the Civil War, but that, those, a lot of those splits and those wounds and, and everything would have still been very, very fresh to people. Yes, they would have. And it's interesting. I actually read the 1937 version whenever I first read it. Got it out of the local library. And I then reread the book, but I read a, an updated version, which O'Connor did in the 60s. And there's one sort of notorious thing which Collins did, which was the assassination of Field Marshal Sir Henry Wilson in London. In the 1937 version, O'Connor is not just unapologetic about it, he's actually pretty gung-ho about it, essentially. Wilson was asking for it, it was just the right thing to do, great stuff, great stuff. 
And the 1960s version then that he wrote, he clearly gone back and rethought about this, and he is much, much, much more negative about it. He says this was unjustifiable under any circumstances, shouldn't have happened. So even though Connor himself was shifting in some of his judgments, presumably with additional historical material and opportunity for reflection. I was also wondering as well that, you know, we mentioned obviously your, your success in Mastermind and in the final you answered questions on Abraham Lincoln in the semi-final, I think it was the novels of Dennis Lehane, but the, the first subject was Michael Collins and I wonder if that was, having read that, that was the seeds of, of your interest and, and fascination with Michael Collins going back to reading Franco yeah. Connors book. Absolutely. Yeah, it gripped me then. And he, he was a, a fascinating character. He was a very colourful, very interesting person. I mean, I think there was a few figures in the 20th century to rival him. I think John Hume certainly is one, arguably Sean Lamas, who was Irish Prime Minister in the middle of the century. But Colin certainly was, uh, was a fascinating figure. He had a considerable dose of moral courage. He, he knew whenever he uh, signed the, the treaty that he was signing his own death warrant in that people were certainly going to have a go at him. And yet he did it because he thought it was the right thing to do. And again, going back to that issue of we have to be effective. I mean, he's probably overshadowed some other figures from that time, like uh, Richard Mulcahy, who was the chief of staff. So Collins' immediate superior during the War of Independence, who was also a pretty brutal figure in many ways, but he praised civilian authority over the army, which was an important thing. I think it's one of the reasons he was so ruthless in the Civil War against his former comrades. And he understood the importance of being effective if you're going to fight a, a revolutionary war, because otherwise you're just shooting people for no reason. And I think that, as I said, that goes back to the question of, you know, it is not good enough to be well-meaning about stuff. I mean, this is one of the reasons I get so frustrated with uh, the Corbynistas of the world. Nobody would doubt somebody like Jeremy Corbyn was a, is a man of enormous good intention to everyone. But he was utterly ineffective as a leader of the opposition, I think, particularly as a leader of the opposition to Brexit, which, frankly, he supported. And, you know, if you can't turn your good intentions into policy, into achievement, then you really need to get out of the way and let somebody who can lead on that. And I think that's the, the transformation from people like Patrick Pierce into people like Michael Collins, is people who were interested in the gesture into people who wanted to actually turn the intent behind the gesture into concrete achievement and, uh, and policy achievement. Well, you're listening to the Read All About It podcast with me, Paul Cuddy, and my guest, Aidan McQuaid. Aidan, we're on to your third book choice in the podcast, uh, which is always a difficult one, I think, for everyone, and that's a book that you would recommend to anyone. But the book that you've chosen is a book called The Silence of the Girls by Pat Parker. Yeah, um, something I read 10, 20 years ago was saying you shouldn't actually have one favourite book. It's sort of a bit like what you've done, is you should look at a, a book at, at each stage in your life, something that made you think a bit differently during those stages of your life. And so I would have, uh, maybe if you, were, if you were asking me that question, I would go through different choices from my 20s and 30s and 40s on up. And then just earlier this year, I read The Silence of the Girls and I decided, actually, I've been wrong about that. There is an answer to the question, what's the best book you've ever read? And it's The Silence of the Girls. <laughs> I'd read other Pat Barker stuff and I thought it was good and impressive and everything, but it never carried for me the emotional punch that Silence of the Girls did. And I think there's maybe a couple of reasons for that. 
I mean, first of all, I mean, the source material is pretty good. It's a retelling of the Iliad. And let's face it, that's all the foundation of all, uh, certainly all Western literature is the Iliad. And that's something, you know, the whole the myths and legends of ancient Greece and the siege of Troy was something which, again, fascinated me from childhood. And, you know, after Rosemary Sutcliffe discovered the uh, translations of the Iliad and the Odyssey by Roger Lancel Green, and those transported me for another couple of weeks. So that's something which has always interested me over the years. But the thing which Pat Barker does with The Science of the Girls, which is very simple and utterly transformational, is that she decides to tell the story from the perspective of Briseis, who's the girl who has been captured by Achilles and who Achilles gets into the argument with Agamemnon over the possession of. And so it's this young woman and she's probably no more than 19, who has been uh, cast down from being a, a noble woman of Troy into being a chattel slave for, um, for these thugs who are invading her country. So, I mean, again, you can think of this from the perspective of, like, for example, the Isis Brides of the present day, the girls who are kidnapped and raped by them in order to reward the fighters. And this is very much the experience that this young woman has. And then she is reflecting on all of the events of the Iliad Again, using a lot of the dialogue from the Iliad, but from the perspective of a girl who has been enslaved by these marauding invaders. Natalie Haynes is a writer I like a lot. And she's again done a, a, an effort to uh, rewrite some of, or retell rather, some of the Greek myths from a female perspective. Again, she's written a wonderful book called The Children of Jocasta about the Oedipus legends. And she's written another book called The Thousand Ships about all of the tales of Troy. And those are really, really good books, but they just lack the emotional punch of The Silence of the Girls, I think, because in The Silence of the Girls, you stay with this young woman all the way through. She become profoundly invested in what happens to her. And it just is an extraordinary piece of writing. And it makes you rethink all of those legends of Greece and, and Rome that you read. I mean, what does heroism really mean? Uh, I mean, these guys just were, you know, they were essentially ISIS-type fighters off their tail. And to a certain extent, Homer was trying to communicate that because, you know, at the rage of Achilles at the end, you know, the river gods beg Achilles to stop killing because their waters are so choked with the corpses of the slain. So, you know, Homer wasn't saying this is a nice thing, but on the other hand, he never... Uh, sought really to mention the plight of the civilians in the, in the midst of this. And um, this is something which Pat Barker really brilliantly imagines with the whole thing. Because I, I wonder, you know, that way when you stumble upon a book and as you say, you suddenly, you suddenly realise from your point of view that there is the best book in the world ever written. Once you've read that, are you wanting to evangelise about it? Yeah. And also, and it's a question I often ask people, uh, once you do give it to other people and you recommend it, are you waiting for the reaction? And how do you react if they don't have the same feeling towards it? I mean, most people I've given it to so far have been pretty positive about it. I give it to my sister and she's very underwhelmed. But my sister does actually want to burn my book in a public display of, uh, <laughs> of disgust as well. So, you know, maybe we've different tastes, I suppose. Yeah, but I think most people who I've given it to and recommended it to have reacted very similarly to it. They may not be quite as effusive as I, but I think they are all saying that this is really something quite special. Yeah, I think it's, it really is an incredible piece of writing. I was interested as you said there about your, your sister, where she wanted to burn your novel. <laughs> my novel, yeah. Uh, she's disgusted in the, at the, the colourful language, let's put it like that, 
and not just the fact that there's colorful language, but that the neighbors might read the colorful language. <laughs> <laughs> so. I mean, that's a, I mean, that is quite a, a visceral reaction from, from a relative. You know, I mentioned at the start, which I've, I've read The Undiscovered Country. I mean, I, I, you know, obviously, you know, the language, but I, I think the language has to be for the type of characters and the kind of the story and the world and the time that they're involved in, which yeah. we can talk about. But the first thing I was wanting to ask is, which again was really interesting, I mentioned it was published by Unbound Books, but it was, you know, they're a crowdfunding publisher, so they'll put the project up for people who don't know. So the project will, has to reach a certain amount of money and there's certain levels that you can invest and there's certain kind of returns and rewards for that. So for a novel, you know, especially a, a debut novel to, to be successfully funded like that, that, even before it comes out, that must have been a real validation for what you were, the story you were trying to tell. It is, and, and, and most of the people who have read it have liked it, um, and some, some of them quite passionately as well. So that's been very nice too. I mean, but whenever I was, I was initially trying to get it published, I think a lot of the agents and publishers I went to said, well, yeah, we, we quite like it, but we don't think it'll sell. And the notion was, you know, if you've, if you've got a, a novel about a small bit of the Irish War of Independence, who's going to be interested in that apart from maybe half a dozen people who are interested in the Irish War of Independence? One of the first readers I had for the book was uh, a friend of mine called Mina Varma, whose name explains that she's uh, of English, of uh, South Asian heritage. And one of the reasons I asked her was to read it was, I know the sort of thing she likes to read, but also because she doesn't have anything to do with Ireland whatsoever, would she feel, would she be the sort of person who felt this had an appeal beyond that parochial niche? She loved it. And I think that was part of, that was an important validation as well, because it's set in a specific historical and geographic context, but the themes I try and talk about in the book are universal. And I think those who have read it have felt that it's resonated a lot. I just was, I was speaking to a book club in Hull a couple of weeks ago about it, and they all, all English folk, all without any connections with Ireland, all felt it had something universal to say, as well as being interesting in itself in terms of the fact that they mostly knew nothing about Irish history. So, you know, it's, it's good to, to show their publishers maybe that, you know, there is a market for different stuff. There is a market for stuff which maybe is a bit beyond the mainstream and uh, begins to, you know, whet people's appetites for other voices, other, other stories. And again, it's about that thing of just because you're in a small town in South Armagh or Mayo or Greece or Poland or South Africa doesn't mean that what you have to say isn't relevant to the general human condition. It's hard to actually define, because the undiscovered country, on one hand, it's to an extent some, some of it's a pure crime novel, but it's also, mm. as you say, there's, there's a historical element to it as well. The basic premise is, you know, there's two you know, in, in the kind of early, still in the middle of the, the war of independence. So the, the Irish Republic or the, the fledgling is setting up some sort of the apparatus of the state, you know, that there's kind of courts and these two IRA guys are sent to a small village almost to police it and they discover a boy's bodies found in the river and, you know, partly through their own experience, they realise that this isn't an accident. So they're having to investigate the crime, but within the wider political and military things that are going on and it's, it becomes a, much more than just them investigating the crime. So, so I think it's, it appeals across a whole different range. And they, they, those two guys are quite fascinating because on the one hand, they're, they're kind of soldiers to an extent and they can be quite coarse, but there's also something that elevates them because of their own background and education that, that makes them maybe see the wider picture. And, and some of the conversations they have are quite interesting. I mean, I think the thing that elevates them is reading. I think that's the thing that they have in common. 
or it was one of the couple of things that they have in common is that they're reading, they're interested in books and ideas and, and life beyond their village, and beyond their war. I think what I try to portray is a, is a growing friendship between these two guys, raising a lot from not just the circumstances in which they find themselves, but also the sharing of ideas that they have amongst themselves. I think that's a thing which you often see in, um, in really good crime fiction. Um, so, again, you look at the writings of Dennis Lehan, you look at probably the most direct inspiration for, for this book would be the writing of Philip Kerr and the Bernie Gunther novels, which are about an honest, more or less, honest German detective uh, through the Weimar period and the Second World War and the post-Second um, World War period. And I think there, there are things which, because the crime novel bet in and of itself is meant to be dealing with an extreme of human experience, it does really excavate just what's going on in people's thinking and thoughts and, and you really start to see the essence of human beings in in those extreme situations i once canoed down the zambezi uh with a, a sort of safari in zimbabwe many years ago and the young fellas who were the guides the young zimbabwean fellas who were the guides were very competent professional fellas with like degrees in river guiding and they said well Always what we do here is if it's a married couple, we make sure they sit in a separate canoe. And if it's a couple who aren't married, we'll always put them in the same canoe. Why is that? He says, well, if you're married, it's too late to see just what your partner's like under pressure. And, you know, it's pretty safe because these guys really know what they're doing. But you will come into close contact with hippos and crocodiles. And that can be a bit worrying. And so how do people react to that? And, uh, you know, I mean, war is one of the, the great hippos of life, I suppose, in terms of the threat that it can pose to you and your loved ones and those about you. And you really start to see what the realities of people are underneath all of that. What I, what I loved about it was partly, and you kind of just touched on it there, and, and you obviously the Philip Kerr books. And I was just looking, the other books that kind of remind me of that kind of Babylon Berlin series, I think yes. it's Volker Kutcher, which was turned into a great TV series. But it's that idea of, you know, these guys are investigating, as you say, a, a crime that under normal circumstances is completely shocking, but because of the environment and, and within the novel, there's other equally shocking things that are happening, but under the kind of that umbrella of war that you're not quite sure what, what is the one that should be the most shocking or, or investigated, but also there's a sense that people have almost been inured to, to some terrible things because of what they've maybe seen or experienced. Yeah, that's right. I think, uh, again, I mentioned the excesses of the Dublin Guards during the Irish War of Independence, and that's certainly emerging from from the brutalising experiences that they had during the the War of Independence. And I think you, you see that, you see that in the career of Collins, you see that in the career of a lot of people. Maybe most superbly rendered in a literary form by Ernie O'Malley. Now, Ernie O'Malley was a senior IRA commander during the War of Independence, and he wrote what's regarded as the only literary uh, work by a senior commander. So there's books like Guerrilla Days in Ireland by Tom Barry, which is a very good book and a very interesting book, but it's, you wouldn't class it as literature. O'Malley's account on Another Man's Wound is, and it's, I think, something of a 20th century Irish classic. And he describes his experiences from the 1916 raising up until the end of the War of Independence. And he describes going from a point where he was afraid to even challenge police to try and capture their arms because he was afraid he might hurt somebody to the very end whenever he murders three prisoners. And he's clearly trying to show how war brutalizes even decent human beings. And so there's a clear literary intent there in terms of how his 
He's been so morally degraded that at the very end, he doesn't think very much of, of shooting. And it wasn't, he didn't shoot three black and tans. He didn't shoot people who were, had this reputation for atrocity. He shot three British soldiers who consistently through the war of independence had had a reputation for discipline and decency all the way through. And yet, at the very end, he decides to do this. So it's, it's showing how, how uh, war morally degrades people. And I think that's a fundamental thing which we often lose sight of. If you look at you know, present day, the deification almost of, or, or the religiousification, if that's a word of the Second World War in terms of large swathes of English society, it's almost universally done by people who have never heard a shot fired in anger. And I think it's, I would certainly class the Second World War as a just war. But even just wars are evil things. Even just wars require ordinary human beings to do dreadful things to other ordinary human beings. And if you read things like the account of the Battle of the Atlantic, Jonathan Dimbleby wrote a very fine account of the Battle of the Atlantic just a year or so ago, with horrendous things which decent human beings do to other human beings is just quite appalling. And that is in just cause. And think about then unjust cause and how that can uh, impact on people. And that's something I wanted to get across in the book. And it's something I wanted to discuss a bit within the book as well. And, uh, and it's a point which one of my characters makes in the course of that. Even just wars are evil things. And uh, we really must get away from the romanticization of war and to recognize that war represents failure and represents the worst of human activity. Well, I have to say, I mean, my reaction in reading it was not to take it outside and bomb it, if you'll be relieved to know. But that is, uh, uh, it, it may be a low bar, but that's the bar I'm trying to get up. <laughs> if, if I could take you on from uh, the book that you would recommend to anyone to a book that you couldn't be paid to read again. You chose a book, but then also uh, just prior to we started recording this, you'd also chosen an author. So if we start just with the, the book that you'd mentioned, which is the, uh, it was a book by Lance Price called The, the Modi Effect. What was it about that book that uh, I couldn't pay you to read it again? Well, it was, I mean, there was a couple of books I was thinking about, and the books I was initially thinking about were mostly novels. And I think, well, if you're thinking about a novel and haven't, haven't written a novel and subject to the slings and arrows of my sister's contempt and outrageous fortune as a result of that, I thought, well, one should be a bit generous of spirit about that because even the worst novel is an effort towards art and that should never be treated with too much contempt. The thing about the Modi effect, however, was that it's not a novel, it's a non-fiction book. And Lance Price, who was a spin doctor for Tony Blair, was offered the opportunity of observing Prime Minister Modi's election campaign whenever he first won the premiership in India a few years ago. So off he goes to report on this. And... Um, I mean, you just sort of read the first chapter or so, and he's sort of like, um, it is such a humble brag of a chapter in terms of things like, um, I met Nelson Mandela, you know, and uh, I've, I've hung out with Tony Blair in 10 Downing Street, you know, and he's taken my counsel, you know. And then one of his lanes as he's moving along the surface, it's quite brave of Prime Minister Modi to ask me to write this book because, quote, you can't spin a spinner. And he's thinking, you can't lie to me because I'm so savvy in the ways of politics. And then you read the book, and you re read the book of this utterly naive account of Indian politics written by somebody who isn't even really interested in Indian politics. He writes a book about election processes. He writes a book about, you know, how, he spends a chapter on the technicalities of how Modi had holograms set up to speak to far-flung Indian villages. Uh, he writes chapters about the media campaign and stuff like that. Now, 
that can be interesting and important. I don't think he particularly writes it interestingly and importantly. I think if you, if you listen to some of, or read some of uh, Robert Caro's volumes on his biography of uh, Lyndon Johnson, he really writes fascinating descriptions of the mechanics of elections because he roots them very deeply into American politics and society. And then particularly when he was talking about Lyndon Johnson's senatorial campaign in the politics and society of Texas. There's none of that in Lance Price's book. And Modi has got some very serious questions to answer in terms of his uh, failures to stop sectarian violence in Gujarat whenever he was governor of Gujarat and his promotion of authoritarianism within India and the issues of sectarian tension between Hindus and Muslims within India and the issues of caste discrimination within India, within the different communities. And caste discrimination is as as heinous and destructive as apartheid in South Africa or segregation in um, the United States. None of these things does Lance Price touch upon because he's really just not interested in Indian politics. I don't think he's cracked open a book about Indian politics. He's just taking notes that Modi's BJP wants him to take notes on, and he writes a book about it. It is a lazy book, which is a product of somebody who is so overwhelmingly impressed with their own perspicacity that they are easily manipulated by one of the most important and dangerously important politicians in the world today in order to produce something which is essentially nothing more than a puff piece. So uh, that's a a book which is worthy of hatred, worthy of the respect of even Ian McEwan's efforts towards art. Because that, you know, obviously that was the the other name that came into contention (laughs) just prior to recording was the the canon of, of Ian McEwan. Uh, which, you know, to be fair, you're not the first person to have been unimpressed. Ian McEwan can write. I think he lets some of his own obsessions into the book in a way, into his books in ways which aren't helpful to the books. My first introduction to Ian McEwan was given, I was given a copy of Atonement by, uh, by a friend and uh, I read the first section of it, which is the whole country house bit, which leads to uh, Robbie's arrest at the end of that section. And I was thinking, this is just drivel. And subsequently, I've read, you know, all these, you know, this is such a brilliantly sustained piece of writing by various critics. Uh, and I thought, this is just really, really drivel. But I was happened to read, read, be reading this book on a train from Glasgow to Aberdeen, which got snuck in, stuck in a snowdrift. So instead of the normal journey time, another three hours was added onto the journey time and I had nothing else to read. So I read, the, I read on and then you get into the portion of the book, which is about the retreat to Dunkirk. And then there's another section, which is about the uh, nurses work in the hospitals, treating the wounded, coming back from Dunkirk. And those were superb. And McEwen famously based them on accounts of British soldiers retreating to Dunkirk and nurses working in the hospitals retreating these soldiers. And I think whenever he was rooted into the actual documentary stuff, the actual historical record, he wrote very, very well and told very interesting stories. Then in the back of that, I thought I'd try Amsterdam, uh, which was his Booker Prize winner. And I'd been sort of boycotting Amsterdam for quite a while because it had beaten Seamus Dean's book, Reading in the Dark which was um, about the consequences of the troubles and sectarianism and partition on, on Derry 
essentially, uh, which I think is a masterpiece. I think it's one of the best Irish novels of the 20th century. But I thought on the back of Atonement, I'd have a look at uh, Amsterdam. And Amsterdam is drivel from start to finish. I don't know if he thinks he's got a serious point to make anywhere in it. It certainly doesn't come across. It's about silly people doing stupid things. And that's about it, really. Silly, self-important people. The land's prices of this world, I suppose you might say. And then I started, I think that decided me on Ian McEwan. I accidentally caught myself watching the movie of his book, The Children's Act, the other night on the television. I think the thing that caught me was um, Emma Thompson's performance in it, which was very, very fine. And then the first, you know, I don't know, first half of the film, which was about, you know, a judge dealing with a difficult case to do with a child, which I understand was based on a case which a friend of McEwan's, who was a judge, dealt with, was very fine and very compelling. And then once you get to the end of that part, it then turns into this story of teenage obsession with the judge. And it just goes off into Sillyville again. I just don't know why he has to do that all the time. And I don't know why he can't discipline his story in a different way in order to tell something else that is different. Uh, And it just seems to go into unrealistic realms in a way that doesn't really say anything and doesn't strike as honest and doesn't strike as indicative of any uh, deep, important philosophical points otherwise. So I'm wondering, obviously, we've now got Pretty Patel lined up for the podcast, and I'm wondering if we ever get Lance Price on it, then the book that he would recommend to everyone would be a Ian McEwan novel. <laughs> you, can, you can always try, I suppose. We'll take, you on to, uh, we'll take you on to the last question in the podcast now, and that is the, the book that you've either just read or the book that you're reading now. And the one that you've chosen is a book called Frederick Douglass, Prophet of Freedom by David Blight. Yes, I'm about 200 pages into that, and it's sort of another 500 to go. And I, mean, I suppose if you were to pin me down into terms of what would be amongst my favourite genres, uh, certainly historical biography is, is there. And Douglas was one of the uh, great abolitionists of the 19th century. He was a former slave. He escaped slavery with the help of the woman who became his wife. He had a slight advantage, I suppose, in being enslaved in Maryland, so relatively close to the north. But he was always, he was living in Massachusetts and always in danger of being recaptured by slave catchers, particularly as he became more prominent in the abolitionist movement. So his, uh, he was sent to Britain and Ireland for a tour to you know, raise awareness of the issues of slavery in the United States. And while he was there, British and Irish abolitionists uh, raised the price of his freedom. And he was enormously influential on Abraham Lincoln in terms of uh, his policy and attitudes. Lincoln was always an abolitionist. In fact, a thing which is um, probably not well known is Lincoln himself was enslaved for a period as a child. His father sold him to a neighbour to pay off a debt. And I think that probably gave him a certain degree of empathy towards the idea of uh, people who were enslaved. But he certainly, up until about 1860, would have had attitudes which I think today we would uh, rightly describe as racist. But I think it was was engagement, particularly with Frederick Douglass, and particularly with the troops of the the black regiments of the Union Army, which I think began to fundamentally change some of Lincoln's uh, racial attitudes. And thereafter, after the the end of the American Civil War, he became an ongoing campaigner for civil rights for everyone. So civil rights for women as well as for for black Americans. He was usually on the right side of every cause. He became a supporter, having seen the beginnings of the famine in Ireland, he became a supporter of Irish 
independence and uh, campaigner against uh, the impoverishment of Ireland. He was a great admirer of uh, Daniel O'Connell, I think, which probably led to some sympathy with the national cause in Ireland as well, because Con- O'Connell himself was such an outspoken opponent of slavery. But he, interestingly, also, he was not prepared to uh, accept the um, the easy analogy between the condition of the Irish and the condition of the slave, which was something that O'Connell had used from time to time himself. And there fundamentally were different things. I mean, there was... Irish choices may have been limited to uh, starvation or immigration, but at least there was that choice. Uh, if you were in chattel slavery in the deep American South, you certainly didn't even have that choice. So I think that's, again, it gets down to the importance of the precision in language. And while it's important to be, in Douglas's own words, to enter into the troubles of others, to understand and empathise and campaign for people who are in, in other difficulties and other troubles, it's also important to understand what the differences of those are. And I think that's still very important because too often human rights struggles can become essentially nationalist struggles. So it's about us and about what's happening to us rather than seeing that in the wider context of what's happening to everyone in negative situations. And this is something which I think O'Connell understood. It's something which Frederick Douglass understood. It's something like people like, uh, like John Hume have understood. But it's still surprisingly rare because too often we can get caught up in the, the narrowness of our own struggles rather than understanding the, that these are one part of a much wider continuum. Because I wonder as well, you know, in terms of the work that you've done over many years, that I suppose one of the, the difficulties and challenges, it kind of goes back to what you were saying about Lance Price of, you know, if you're going to either be involved or write a book about, you know, you need to know what it is the subject. And particularly if you're involved in kind of human rights campaign and anti-slavery campaign in different parts of the world, it's beholden in you to kind of know the context within that, within the society or the country that you're going to work with. Absolutely. And also to know what you don't know, know what the limits of your knowledge are and, and understand the things that you will never be able to know. Nobody, I think, outside the counties of Armagh and down in the north of Ireland will understand the rivalry between counties Armagh and down in Gaelic football. And nor should you. It's, it's sort of our own wee thing. It's utterly trivial. It's quite entertaining, but it's not something which anybody outside is ever really going to be able to understand. It's maybe important to know it, though, just to understand things a bit better. And you can think of those sort of like parochial conflicts and interests, which are important to understand, but they can be quite nonsensical and we can allow ourselves to create dangerous divisions on them sometimes whenever, you know, the all that they ever at most should be used for sort of local entertainment. I mean, and this, you know, becomes quite dangerous in many other ways. You know, agents who will try and divide us in the colour of our skin and our religions and or our nationalities. And something which one of my characters says in the book, you know, I mean, it's basic. I think he says it anyway. He certainly thinks it a thing. Uh, it's basically, you know, the, what we need to understand is that we're all human. We all want to love. We all don't want to die. And that's the, really the only things that are important. And those are the things which unite all of us. I think Lisa McGee did this brilliantly in Derry Girls, whenever the, the famous episode where they get the Protestant and Catholic kids to write on the blackboard um, <laughs> the differences between. And, um, uh, you know, Protestants do make better buns. And seemingly they do keep their um, toasters in the cupboards. But, you know, is that really something to have a civil war over? <laughs> well, you're absolutely, that is, I mean, that scene is comic genius. But as you say, there's, there's something else going on there. That is just, yeah. you get beyond the laughter. 
I mean, maybe I have to watch it a few times, but it's that is just a brilliant scene in a brilliant series. Yeah, the other thing which is genius in that series is the the presence of the wee English fella, because he's the one who stuff has to be explained to. So why do you not phone the police if you find an IRA man hiding in the boot of your car? If it had just been people from Derry there, there wouldn't even have been a conversation about that. But the fact that the wee English fellow was there, you have to explain it to him, and therefore you're explaining it to a much wider audience. So uh, I think that was one of the brilliant, brilliant narrative devices which the series used. In terms of the, the book on Frederick Douglass, it was interesting, I just checked that, I know last year the Barack and Michelle Obama did set up a company called Higher Ground Productions that they were wanting to, I think, make mainly documentaries, but particularly, you know, in terms of educational and trying to, particularly on, I presume, the kind of African-American experience. So they, they, their plan is to make a feature-length documentary on that book. They've got the rights to David Blight's book. So I'm not sure if things would have maybe, given what's happened over the last year, that the kind of production schedule maybe you know, halted at the moment, but that certainly seems to be in the pipeline. I think, unfortunately, Morgan Freeman's getting a little too old to play him now, but, I mean, that was... I don't know how any producer in Hollywood didn't look at Morgan Freeman over the past 30 years and say, we need to make a movie about Frederick Douglass because it was the part he was born to play and I don't think he's ever played it. It could have been, you know, his his equivalent of Daniel Day-Lewis as Lincoln, I think. Um, so there's a great pity about that. I don't know if the, if the next generation of actors who are coming along doesn't really seem like Denzel to me, but, you know, Denzel can do anything, really. can always surprise you. But, uh, yeah, so that's a bit of a pity. He certainly is a very, very interesting character. And David Blight's a beautiful writer. I had, had the privilege of uh, being at a conference with him a couple of years ago. And he's, he's one of the world's gentlemen as well. He's a very, very nice man. So, um, yeah, it's a, it's a great book. We're almost coming to the end of the, the podcast. There was one other thing I just wanted to ask you. And, again, I referred to it back in the introduction. Uh, you know, we, we spoke about your, your first novel, The Undiscovered Country. I've mentioned you're, you're working on your second novel. How is that coming along? And is that also set in a kind of either similar uh, setting or similar period of Irish history? Or is it, have, you, have you gone completely different with this one? I was sitting in my local um, about a year ago, wondering what became of the characters who survived the undiscovered country. And I thought, well, can I imagine one of them's probably a detective inspector now in the guards. The other one has probably just got out of jail in the north. How might that affect their relationship now? And what might their lives be like at this stage? And I th- whenever I wrote The Undiscovered Country, it was about the murder of a child. It wasn't quite gratuitous picking that subject. Ireland, as, a, as two states, has failed to protect its children. It failed to protect its children in the 20th century. I think that's one of the original sins of Ireland in terms of 20th century history. I wouldn't say it's the only one. The treatment of women and girls has also comparably been appalling through much of the 20th century. Peter Mullins from the Magdalene Laundries highlighted that um, very importantly, I think. I mean, if you look at that from a perspective, from an objective perspective of the international law on slavery, that was a representation of the institutionalization of the enslavement of women and girls for decades. And I think the other big uh, original sin of 20th century Ireland is partition itself. And partition itself contributed to the uh, negative treatment of, of women and girls within the likes of the Magdalene Laundries as well, because people would be shifted across the border in different jurisdictions. But it also, I think, more fundamentally, it created essentially an orange state in the north and a green state in the south. 
and the notion of Ireland as a as a society from the time of Wolf Tone uh, was Protestant, Catholic, and Descender, and united under the common name of Irish. And in separating them out and dividing these two communities, the ideal of a plural Ireland was put on hold for the best part of a century and is only really growing up now. And so these are, th- are things which I, I thought was also important to uh, explore. And then I th- realized that I had got these characters knocking around in my head who still might have something to say about it. So I've shifted the time frame on to 1925 and Newry with um, one of them just coming out of jail and the life that awaits him after that. Excellent. Well, listen, I'm, I haven't enjoyed the Undiscovered Country. I'm looking forward to it. And I'm certainly hoping that uh, your sister has a, a more positive reaction to this one. <laughs> Thanks very much, Paul. We can only hope. <laughs> um, but listen, uh, sadly we are at the end of the podcast. I have to say, and it's been, it's been a real joy uh, chatting to you today about some of your favourite and, and not so favourite books as well as, as well as your own books. And uh, I really appreciate you uh, coming on to the podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure, Paul. Thanks very much for having me. Thanks for listening to the Read All About It podcast and I'd love to hear what you've thought about it. You can get in touch via Twitter at ReadAllAbout20, on Instagram at ReadAllAboutItPodcast or you can send an email to ReadAllAboutIt at paulcuddehy.com. If you've enjoyed the podcast, subscribe, leave a review and spread the word. If you haven't enjoyed it, say nothing to anybody. But I do hope you can join me, Paul Cuddehy, next time on the Read All About It podcast. And in the meantime, keep reading.